Many Canadians uh, keeping an eye on the next-door neighbours have been watching the Democratic National Convention unfold over the past few days. And, of course, the Republicans will take their turn next week with the president, this morning at least, uh, saying he'll be delivering his acceptance speech from the White House. Joe Biden, even according to Fox News, hit a home run with his acceptance speech on Thursday night. So could that turn the tide? Well, according to our next guest... Probably not. Theconversation.com is the place we found the article entitled, Trump Could Win Again Without Cheating. The author of the article is from McGill University in Montreal, where he is an associate professor and department chair of history and classical studies. A pleasure to welcome Professor Jason Opel to the program this morning. Jason, good day. Thanks for joining us, sir. Oh, my pleasure. It's good to have you with us. Uh, first and foremost, before we get to your piece on Trump, how about a quick uh, thumbnail sketch of your take on the Democrats and the fight they're about to mount? Well, they definitely have a large battle ahead of them. I think they're perhaps um, overconfident or some of them, some of the sort of general kind of media uh, coverage of the Democrats are a bit overconfident because it seems so obvious given uh, Mr. Trump's objectively bad handling of the pandemic, I think it's fair to say, and his, you know, kind of continuing outrages against a number of procedures and traditions in American democratic life, that it would just be obvious the Democrats will win, that, you know, kind of history is on the Democrat side. Um, but I think history really doesn't take sides here. It, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a kind of morally neutral uh, term. And so it turns out that I think Mr. Trump has a lot of advantages, despite all that's happened over the last four years. Um, that being said, I should say, I, I really do think the Democrats did a good job with their convention, um, especially because Mr. Biden focused so tightly on the COVID disaster. Um, he had kind of other speakers in the previous three days raise other issues, sure. uh, you know, kind of survey the spectrum of the Democratic Party, which is pretty wide from mm-hmm. the center to the left. Um, and then he just focused mostly on COVID and basically on a kind of basic appeal to decency. Um, and I think that was effective. Well, you know, I just uh, commented of going uh, into this uh, conversation, Jason. I referenced the uh, remarks from Michael Moore uh, four, uh, four and a half years ago uh, when he predicted quite accurately, as it turns out, that uh, Mr. Trump was going to win that uh, 2016 yep. election. And he was at the time, this is prior to his heretical new movie about uh, climate change and those who would right. exploit it for their own advantage. Uh, he was at the time quite the icon of the left and uh, yep. when he made this prediction hey folks smarten up here because this guy's going to win this election millions of lefties went oh come on and and of fell course. down laughing and of course prove more proved them all wrong so are the same factors that got trump into the presidency in the first place in 2016 enough to repeat in 2020 they are certainly uh, sufficient. And the question is sort of to what degree they're going to be activated. Um, so let me just say, like, on one basis, the electoral map is what decides American presidential elections, for better or worse, I think worse, because it often means that the winner did not win the uh, majority of votes. But that's the deal for now. Sure. And if you just look at the electoral map, this it will come down as it has over the last 20 years. Pretty, pretty, pretty consistent electoral pattern. The East Coast and the West Coast go Democrat. The uh, Go Democratic, Colorado, and a few other exceptions. And the race is decided by the upper Midwest, which is, to say, Pennsylvania to Michigan mm-hmm. and Florida. And th- those, th- those, that's what the election really comes down to. And in those states, you know, I think it's looking pretty good for Biden, but it's very, it's very close. And so, once again, you know, certainly Mr. Trump can, can win just on the same electoral count he did in, in 2016. At a deeper level... What are the factors that make Mr. Trump uh, possible to win? That's what I wanted to write about, because we hear a lot and we uh, see a lot about the kind of extreme Trump supporters. Yes. Right? So the MAGA hat wearing. The, OK, that, that's one phenomenon. It's very interesting. Uh, the base, there are really evangelical Protestant, white evangelical Protestants, not the so-called working class. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, that's one thing I wanted to write about the kind of more quiet Trump supporters who are less politicized for whom Trump is a surprisingly safe choice. And I think those people will decide the election because they are, they are well represented, especially in the upper Midwest and in Florida. And there are reasons for a lot of people 
to find Mr. Trump, as incredible as it might sound, safe. Jason, are those people who are going to go to that corner and vote that way this year, did they do the same thing back in 2016? Yes, they did. And so what they did, these people that I'm speaking to are generally conservative leaning, but they wouldn't consider themselves to be, frankly, that political, right? So that's an important point. Such people, you know, tend to obviously to vote Republican, but they don't always vote Republican. They often just don't vote. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that in 2012, many of them stayed home and Mr. Romney lost those states. In 2016, more of them turned out and Trump won. I mean, it's really as simple as that. And um, so, I so, to kind of so explore, I, I'm curious, yeah. though, Jason, let me maybe stop you just for a sec. What was sure. the difference, though? It, why did they stay home? Because I, I gather I, I get that Mitt Romney is not the most dynamic human being ever to put on right. a pair of shoes. I get that. <laughs> but it, it, was he so bland that staying home felt OK versus Trump, who's anything but bland, where they en masse went out and voted? I think, in a, in a, it put it very simply, that's that's correct. I mean, so Mr. Romney just didn't, and I'll, I'll just use the verb that's probably most accurate, excite uh, either the kind of really hardcore, you know, quite far right voters or the ones I'm talking about, the more kind of quiet ones. In addition, there just wasn't enough of a kind of reaction at that point. There, there wasn't a sort of reactionary mood in the United States. Right. There certainly was in 2016. Um, and, you know, to, just to, to, to put it out there, what I'm talking about here are, are people who are, you know, relatively, they're, they're very secure in the idea of the United States as being a predominantly run by and run for white people. And I say this understanding the racial sensitivities, but look, I'm just looking at the evidence here. Mr. Trump won every single white demographic in 2016. He won white men by 31 points over Clinton. He won white women by nine points over Clinton. He won rich white people, poor white people, college-educated white people, non-college-educated white people. I mean, it's a really, it's a white coalition. Mm-hmm. So those voters, I mean, not all, obviously, but a considerable number of overwhelmingly white voters um, can see in Mr. Trump something safe because he allows them to, to, uh, to look back at a time prior to the 1970s or 60s in which the voices on TV, the voices in government, the, the visible and audible people who run society are almost exclusively white. And they would not consider themselves to be, you know, um, uh, uh, rancorously racist. They would not have anything to do with people like we've seen in Charlottesville and elsewhere who are actually white supremacists or neo-Nazis. But they're frankly comfortable with the historic privileges of being a white American. And Trump speaks to that far more... I won't say eloquently, he speaks far more directly to that kind of visceral feeling than Mr. Romney did or that Mr. Bush and Mr. George W. Bush did. He, Trump is unique in the modern era in speaking directly to racial uh, kind of resentment and a yearning for racial privileges. Interesting stuff. Now, and of course, we have to remember, too, the other factor that defeated Mitt Romney, aside from his own personal and incredible blandness, was the sitting president, Barack Obama. That did yeah. help a whole lot. Professor Jason Opel, who is an associate professor and department chair of history and classical studies at Montreal's McGill University. Professor Opel has written a piece for theconversation.com, one of our favorite sites, uh, entitled Trump Could Win Again Without Cheating. And that was in brackets. <laughs> Mr. Uh, Trump, uh, you described Professor Opal won uh, every white vote category that was identifiable in 2016. And you seem to think he's an absolute shoe in to repeat across that board. Is that the case? Uh, I think he is set to win a majority of the white demographics. And again, by that, I mean, so, you know, age breakdowns, income breakdowns and education level breakdowns. He, he won across the board among white voters in 2016. I think it will be very, it'll be, he will not dominate as much as he did in 2016 with white voters. I could even see white women actually shifting slightly uh, um, overall to Biden. Um, but he certainly will be the person to beat in all those demographics. And that's just a very important thing, I think, for observers in Canada or the United States to understand that Trump has, I'll just put it this way, a kind of natural constituency and connection to a huge number of white voters. And many of whom, as I said, do not consider themselves or would actually sort of be, you know, offended by the term racist. Mm -hmm. They are simply comfortable with 
a long historical pattern in which white Americans have all kinds of privileges. Um, and that's just an important thing to for Mr. Biden, especially, to understand. And uh, if anything, the, the past four years have been have given Mr. Trump a, a, a much opportunity, many opportunities to solidify his position and to make that group of voters even more, to use your word, Jason, comfortable voting for him. Yes, I think so. Um, in many ways, his extreme anti-immigrant uh, policies. Uh, his uh, persistent efforts to roll back um, educational and other uh, measures to try to try to break down uh, segregation patterns, all of that speaks to and directly comes from a kind of uh, position of white res- resentment. Um, will that solidify that vote? I think it will slightly split that vote. Um, there's been changes over the last four years that are not just uh, for Mr. Trump, but against him. True. And as you've seen recently, especially in um, many of the protests, uh, the so-called Black Lives Matter protests, there are a lot of people, um, white Americans, who are who have really changed their minds about this, who have really opened their eyes to a lot of uh, patterns in American life, especially with the police, that disadvantage, often quite violently, um, their black fellow citizens. So I think there's no question that he has spoken to and, in his own mind, delivered for white Americans I don't think that all of them will respond to that. I, I think it will be a closer run uh, uh, election this time in terms of the white demographics. And as I say, I, I could even see white women um, actually breaking slightly towards Biden. Professor Opal, you identify two reasons Mr. Trump is uh, quite possibly the winner or going to be the winner this November 3rd. The first you've just explained at length, the notion of white voters of all demographic groups feeling pretty comfortable with the guy. The other group, the other area or pocket of support that you've identified is employers, for crying out loud. What does that mean? So I, I want to, you know, as a, as a kind of disclaimer here, say so nothing against employers. Uh, my, my wife was an employer when we lived in the state of Maine. It, it's rather to say what by that I mean, as modern America has taken shape, employers who are a small fraction of the population, uh, a tiny fraction, have more power vis-a-vis their workers than is the case in Canada or Europe, the, the countries to which the U.S. is usually compared. How so? There are a lot of, there are a lot of reasons to that, but, but the most obvious is to do with health care. So healthcare as a social right or as a right that connects each citizen to the state directly as a kind of, you know, this is my right as a, as a person living in Canada or living in France or whatever. Mm-hmm. In the United States, that does not exist. You have access to healthcare vis-a-vis your employer. So there are exceptions because of Obamacare past 2011, but the vast majority of workers in the United States access healthcare and have health insurance because of their employer, not because of the United States. And that is a fact of extreme importance because it means that every worker in the United States has a degree of, I'll say, dependence upon their, uh, every employee, excuse me, in the United States has a degree of dependence on their employer for a vital thing like health care. Mm-hmm. That makes employers more powerful. In addition, uh, unions. Unionization rates are not a perfect measure of how, you know, how democratic an economy is, but they're in a measure. In the United States, that number of people who are in unions is about 10% of all workers and only about 6% of private sector employees. Mm-hmm. That's about one-third the rate in Canada, although there are significant variations across provinces. And that means that labor, you know, for lack of a better term, is weak um, vis-a-vis employers. And employers overwhelmingly, not, although not exclusively, tend Republican, tend traditionally conservative. And in that respect, Mr. Trump, this is a surprising thing for many people, but he's a, he's a fairly conventional Republican when it comes to economic policy. If anything, he's a more extreme Republican. So cut taxes, cut regulations. And that, that's what he's done. He, he has delivered the, those things for employers. Um, I'm mostly speaking about big employers, but small business owners as well. And in that respect, the rest of it, you know, his, Mr. Trump's increasingly disturbing press conferences, mm-hmm. um, his increasingly, I'll just say, incompetent response to the pandemic. Frankly, that matters less to a lot of employers than the fact that he is a safe choice who will cut taxes and regulations and will keep the kind of state at bay or keep, empl- or keep uh, workers at bay. And I don't want to draw too you know, sharp a line about you know, kind of class warfare, but there, is, there are structural reasons that employers in the United States are more powerful, have more influence over society, 
have more influence about what makes up common sense in, in, in the society and culture than is the case in Canada or, or Western European countries. So it's interesting. You, you use the word safe. I'm, I'm, I think I've counted it about nine times, Jason. Yeah. And, and not that I'm keeping stats here, but no, it just keeps coming up because you, your, your point of the article being that in, in any voting scenario, whether it's Canada, the United States or anywhere else for that matter, a very large sector of the electorate is going yep. to go out and make an X or whatever they do in the States uh, yep. beside the candidate that represents the safest option for the the future. And, in, right. and your point simply is that for a significant percentage of the American population, regardless of his erratic personality or whatever, consider yes. Mr. Trump's policies to be safer. That's right. And I think that that does not mean that he is unbeatable by any means. Right. And as I say, I, th- I think Mr. Biden and the Democrats have run a fairly disciplined campaign so far it's obviously really bizarre in in, in the pandemic times to, to, to campaign but sure. they're being smart about it which is basically what is the thing that could move the proverbial needle the clear answer is the covid pandemic i mean th- th- that is a thing that could shift voters especially in a state like florida which has a it's the second oldest state in the union right and older people are much more vulnerable so i mean I, th- th- they're being smart about sort of focusing on that and basically making a case for competent governance that is more inclusive. That's basically what they're saying. And that could, I think that, you know, I think that that is a, is a good argument to make and it could very well beat Mr. Trump. But I just think it's important to note that um, safety in the, in the case of, well, he's a conventional choice. He's actually a surprisingly conventional choice for Americans who are, I'll, I'll sort of make it put it this way, a white business owner in the United States. What problem does he have with Mr. Trump? Um, frankly, he has no problem with right. Mr. Trump. And so, and his, I'll say his um, influence over society is, is extremely significant and powerful. And I think not entirely captured by media coverage that stresses how many times Mr. Trump embarrasses the United States on the world stage or how pathetic uh, the federal response to the pandemic is. That might not matter as much as it might seem. Interesting stuff. Jason Opel, we appreciate your time this morning. It's great to have you on the program. Get to get an interesting projection uh, for November 3rd. Tomorrow, by the way, you should know, sir, we're going to American University in Washington to talk to Alan Lickman, uh, who who disagrees with you, by the way. Uh, He's he's predicting Mr. uh, Mr. Trump will lose uh, this election. He's been right uh, since 1984. So uh, as but Jason, the point here is that you you proposed uh, an alternate point of view that we don't hear very often, particularly up here in Canada. And and it's very kind of exciting to talk to you about that. So uh, we'd like to keep your phone number. And as this thing gets a little closer to the wire, uh, we'll come back to you and see uh, how things that will test the theory as we get closer to the to the event. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks very much. Well, great to have you this morning. Thanks for your time. We appreciate it. We'll talk again. Sure. There's Professor Jason Opel from McGill University, where he is uh, Department Chair of History and Classical Studies. And how about that for a prediction? Are you awake yet? <laughs> we are going to talk agriculture here. The, the Trudeau government has prorogued Parliament, uh, suspending all the committees, of course, doing investigative work into their malfeasance. Uh, they say, uh, of course, the excuse for that has nothing to do with any investigations going on. It has to do with a, quote, reset. We're going to go away, have a cabinet retreat. We're going to come back, uh, reconvene parliament, have a speech from the throne. We're going to, quote, go big and go green. So what does that mean for Canadian the Canadian economy? Well, if you happen to be in a sector of the economy that's already leaning green, perhaps this is welcome news. And we're talking agriculture now for the next little bit. We have a farmer here in British Columbia and one standing by in Ontario that we're going to talk to uh, again with uh, the, the, a look ahead to all of this uh, green stuff that the federal government appears to be all set to, to lean on. Chris Bodner joins us from the Earth Apple Organic Farm here in Abbotsford. Chris, good morning. Thanks for joining us. 
Good morning. It's good to have you with us. What do you make, first of all, of the stated mission of the government with respect to uh, tweaking the economy? They say big, they're going to go big, and that means uh, they're going to look at things like uh, pharmacare, universal child care, possibly some kind of universal basic income, and also in there will be certainly transitioning many sectors of the economy into what they see as a more green uh, route forward. You're already there, aren't you, Chris? Well, we're on our way, and that's what we're trying to do. But what we really need at this point, uh, particularly coming out of the COVID-19 situation, is support that will help us to transition to a more sustainable way of doing business. And so that means not just looking at how do we how do we take care of things like over the next six months in terms of uh, in terms of a restart of the economy? It's looking at what is the opportunity here to really put ourselves in a position to thrive over the long term and uh, to to tackle not just the recovery from COVID but to deal with climate change because that's something that has been impacting farmers for a number of years now. Right. And we only see it getting worse if we don't do something immediately. So there's this new group called Farm. I don't know how new it is. You can tell me that part, Chris. But there's this group called Farmers for Climate Solutions. We're going to talk to a fellow member in Ontario in a couple of minutes here. How long has that organization been around? Yeah, so we came together this year, early in the year, to start calling for policy solutions from the government to deal with climate change. And then COVID-19 hit. Yeah. And so we've looked at what we were asking for and what we actually see is the the initial requests that we had back in January fit perfectly with what we need to do to keep moving forward. I mean, the same problems, you mentioned pharmacare, all of these other things, they haven't gone away Mm -hmm. because we have COVID. A lot of them are actually made that much worse. And so if we ignore these other things in restarting our economy, that is going to be a problem for the long term. And so as farmers, we're saying, Let's look at how do we how do we make our farms more renewable energy power sources? How do we mentor a new generation to come in and take better care or to have the knowledge to farm in a different way? Um, how do we how do we increase our biodiversity on the farms to provide resilience when we're faced with a changing climate? Well, Chris, Those are some of the things that we really want to look at. Yeah, and on the website, for example, you, the first statement you make, this is uh, farmersforclimatesolutions.ca, uh, friends. Canadi- the first statement you make is Canadians know we need resilience in our food system. Well, what do you mean by resilience, Chris? What we mean is, like, for example, on our farm this year, because of the weather that we had in June and July, we lost all of our tomatoes. Okay. Um, and so we if, we, if that would have been a situation where we only grew tomatoes, we would have been making our crop insurance claim and we would have been done for the year. Mm-hmm. And what consumers would have seen is empty shelves. Like if this happened to a number of farms or our suppliers would have seen nothing from us. The reality is that we farm a number of different crops. And so that's, that's even that diversity within our crop plan that is resilience built in so that we always have something available to sell, to fill the shelves with. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's something that consumers, they don't see what happens on the day-to-day basis in the farm. But when we start to see larger issues with, with uh, weather, for example, impacting particular crops, and, and the one this year that I think a lot of consumers will have seen in BC, things like apricots, cherries, the wild weather we've had over the last six months, meant that they had about a 10% of normal harvest off Mm -hmm. of those crops. And it's not the first time. This is the second year in a row they've been impacted so severely. And so that resiliency, we need to have other, like we need to have um, a way to make sure that we have food to put on the table. And that that food, the more local it is in, in terms of its production, the the better access that we have to that as British Columbians and as Canadians in general. Chris, I want to. Uh, there's a, a series of recommendations uh, the group Farmers for Climate Solutions has come together and made. They include making farms green energy powerhouses, providing incentives for climate friendly farming, helping farmers to mentor other farmers, rewarding farmers who reduce their climate risk. And number five is the one I wanted to, to, to ask you about support new and younger farmers. If anything, Chris, the flight from the family farm has been generational and it has impacted the agriculture segment mightily. How do we keep young kids on Canadian farms? 
Yeah, well, I think that that's, that is the challenge. Um, but what we do see is that when young people see opportunity on the farm, they're more likely to stay on the farm. And I think British Columbia has has a great um, has great recognition of this. There's great uh, public recognition of the role of farmers. But the big thing here is with the price of land and so on, it doesn't allow new entrants to come into the into the sector. And so, getting new people new people into the sector, getting young people to take over farms. That involves uh, both the mentorship so that they're paired up, but also practical financial support. Mm-hmm. Um, so that means access to access to land so that can be uh, advantageous uh, loan options for for young people. It can mean uh, different ways of accessing land ownership um, through such as uh, partnerships and such. We, we need ways to um, to make it advantageous for young people to see the opportunity as opposed to just seeing debt. And I mean, the, the problem that we see in agriculture when the pandemic hit was what was offered to farmers was essentially a whole bunch of new debt. They yeah. could access new, new loans, but that doesn't do anything to put them ahead. It just puts them further under that crushing, cr- crushing burden, essentially, of decades of paying back that money. So do you see, and I, I hate to cut you short, but I have to because i got to take a break and I want to pop off and get some thoughts from Ontario as well. But final, final shot to you here, Chris. As the government gathers in seclusion before uh, breaking the, the, uh, the new policy uh, book out, uh, are, you, are you hopeful that the agricultural sector will receive some recognition beyond here, ha- have some more fresh debt? Um, I think so. I, I think that the that what we've seen from our government so far is uh, recognition that they don't want to leave Canadians hanging in a lurch. Um, I think this is a situation that no one ever went into politics thinking, "Oh, geez, I want to deal with a pandemic." Yeah, really. Um, we have creative people that have solutions, and um, I'm. I, I think that uh, the Minister of Agriculture at a federal level is uh, is looking for solutions from the sector. Um, and ultimately, it, it comes down to what are what are things that we can do, and I, that that ne- don't necessarily cost a ton of money, but that requires to think about policy and the reallocation of resources in a different way. And I think that if we can start to have that conversation around our sector, it puts us in a much better position to deal with challenges going forward. Interesting stuff. Farmers for Climate Solutions, friends, is a great website to find out where the agricultural community has, first of all, huddled up and uh, started to hammer out some policies and the direction they'd like to see the government of Canada take. Chris Bodner in uh, Abbotsford, thank you for this. Great to talk to you this morning. We'll do this again sometime soon, okay? Once they once they define some policy, Chris, we'll get together again and, and we'll get your take on what they've come up with okay yeah thank you for your time that's our pleasure indeed as parliament uh, takes a break to design what's next for post-pandemic recovery farmers for climate solutions are calling on the government to prioritize farmers rural jobs and our country's future food security to create a more resilient canada one of the members of that group uh, joins us from ontario now he is at the new farm south of georgian bay near cremore ontario he is brent Preston. Mr. Preston, Brent, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Sterling. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you, and this is very interesting. Did you hear our conversation with with Chris out in Abbotsford talking about uh, some of the recommendations for uh, the government to consider from farmers for climate solutions? Yeah, I did listen into that. I thought Chris had some some fantastic points. Uh, and you know, if uh, and I I zoomed in on the young farmers aspect. Of I come from a, a long line of Southern Ontario dairy farmers from Norwood, actually, uh, and so I, I'm kind of familiar with kids leaving the farm because right? I've seen my <laughs> my cousins bailing out by the busload in over my yeah. lifetime. So that is a real problem. What's the other from your perspective in Ontario? Anything more? Anything different from the way things get done in Ontario versus the way they? are here in bc that maybe needs to be synced up a little better or are we okay on that level well i think that that um that when listening to listening to uh, what chris had to say it really um, drives home the fact that there are a lot of differences between our agricultural systems and between farms in different parts of the country but there's you know the the same basic challenges are the same from coast to coast to coast right so, so um, as Chris said, we we've been dealing with a long-term debt problem on farms, where where farmers are increasingly indebted. We're dealing with flight from the farm by young people. The average age of Canadian farmers is now over fifty years old, mm-hmm. um, and we're we're seeing 
um, a lot of environmental problems with farming where we have uh, loss of biodiversity, increasing reliance on a few crops for export, um, increasing greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture. This has been a, a strong trend. Um, so so the, the, a lot of the sort of macro indicators for farmers all across the country have been have been um, not very positive for quite a long time. And then, and then COVID hit and I think really revealed some of the underlying vulnerabilities of our food system and revealed that we have this, this really dangerous lack of resilience in the food system. Now, let's talk about that because that's all we have time for this morning, Brent, and it is the key to our, our, our going forward and to you and I having further conversations. Talk to us about the revelations that the pandemic has caused us to understand. Well, I think it's shown that we are heavily reliant on um, on exports and imports of food. So when we uh, when borders close, then we have real scares about our food supply. Mm-hmm. Um, we're very reliant on foreign workers. So uh, again, when the borders close, we don't we can't get enough um, people in to, to grow the food that we need to grow on our farms. Uh, we've ha- we have really serious concentration in the meat packing industry. So when a outbreak happens in one meat plant then um, farmers all over the country are impacted and can't get their animals to market. True. So, so uh, I think what we're really looking for, and what we see as Farmers for Climate Solutions, is that a lot of these problems are sort of a dress rehearsal for the impacts we know are coming from climate change. So if we don't start to make changes now and st- don't start to build that resilience, then those impacts from climate change are going to be much, much worse in the future. Uh, we've seen, Brent, uh, large numbers of farms, and I'm thinking particularly of uh, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta, where the the, the notion of, of it's just farming for profit. And uh, looking, I lived in Alberta for three years and watched enormous uh, amounts of acreage being transferred from other crops, a lot of wheat-based crops, to canola. Why? Because yep. the demand for canola worldwide just shot up through the roof and, and farmers re well, to use today's buzzword, pivoted and started mm-hmm. planting canola. So they're starting to make some money, and I guess others would say, so what's wrong with that? Well, I guess they're planting something to, to the exclusion of everything else, but that's their call, right? Sure, it's their call, but what we've seen is that we have government policies and programs that encourage that sort of concentration on export-oriented monocrop agriculture. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, you know, we're not going to be growing uh, vegetables all across the prairies. The prairies are, are suited to growing grains and oil seeds and those sorts of things sure. um, at a large scale. But we can diversify our markets. We can diversify our crop, um, our, our, uh, the crops that we grow. And what we're, what we're saying is that this lack of diversity is one of the main um, vulnerabilities we have when we start to face climate change. So unless we are planting a diversity of crops, really focusing on the health of our soils, ensuring that we have functioning ecosystems on farms, that the natural biological systems are working well, then we're not going to be, we're not going to be able to withstand um, the, the extreme weather events that we know are going to become more frequent. We're not going to be able to withstand those periods of drought, those intense rainfall yeah. events. Um, and we're going to lose the productive capacity that is at the at the base of our agricultural system. Brent, only a minute left here, and this is kind of a key mm-hmm. question. The Trudeau government appears ready to process everything in terms of future economic policy through the filter of climate change. Are you heartened by that? I'm absolutely heartened by that, and I think even just in the past um, few weeks we've seen uh, – members of the of the federal government reach out to us as an organization and say what do we need to do how can we make our system more resilient how can we prepare for climate change how can we reduce emissions from agriculture um so i'm i'm very optimistic that that um that we are not going to just carry on with the status quo after covid and and as in the government's words we're going to build back better FarmersForClimateSolutions.ca is the website to which both of our guests this half hour belong. Chris Bodner in Abbotsford, B.C. and Brent Preston in Cremor, Ontario. Great to speak to you, Brent. Thanks for making time for us. We'll do this again as we will with Chris. Once the feds come up with something, we'll go back to you guys and see what you think of it. We'd love to do that. Thanks, Sterling. We've had a very interesting conversation with a couple of farmers in our hour so far. Michael Campbell is on deck to join us in about 15 minutes or so with the week that was. But between now and then, we we stay on the focus of farming, but with a completely different take on it, because we're going to move from 
agriculture to aquaculture. We're joined on the line by Sean Hall, who is a spokesperson for the BC Salmon Farmers Association, who's out camping this weekend somewhere out in the woods. Hopefully we have a cell connection. Sean, are you there? I'm here. How are you doing today? <laughs> I'm fine, thanks, and I'm glad you made the connection. It's good to talk to you. Uh, did you? Oh, I had to... Mm. Uh, did you hear any of our conversation with the, the the agriculture guys from BC and Ontario in our last half hour? I was not able to. I'll have to go back and uh, and listen to it. I was driving to a spot with good coverage. Uh, they belong to a group called Farmers for Climate Solutions, and I know you you represent another entirely group, different group of farmers, the salmon mm-hmm. farmers of BC. But does your organization, farmers as they are, belong to Farmers for Climate Solutions too? That's a good question. I uh, I don't believe we do, but that's certainly something I'd be interested in looking at. I mean, environmental stewardship, uh, stewardship of the animals in the environment uh, are, are certainly core to our values. Let's talk a little bit about salmon farming in British Let's Columbia. Because, Sean, I think there are a lot of myths out there. The, the industry has gone through a lot of changes uh, in recent years, uh, and yet there are perhaps some um, uh, impressions of how fish farming is done. We had the Minister of Fisheries on a couple of weeks ago and spoke with her, Bernadette Jordan, about the target the federal government has, for example, Sean, uh, to move yeah. open pen, open ocean fish farming operations out of the ocean onto land. So that's a, a five-year window for an entire agri- aquaculture industry to pivot according to uh, what the federal minister seems to think that is the direction the industry will take. How realistic is it? Well, I think one of the, the, the key things that we want to um, talk about here is, is the, con- the important context of the industry. Salmon farming is really important in, in BC. We produce about six and a half million meals worth of, of salmon every every week. We produce about three quarters of the salmon that's harvested in BC uh, total in an, on an annual basis. So it's an important industry. There's seven thousand families that rely on salmon farming uh, for, for good for good jobs, and the industry has been characterized by continued evolution. Um, we're continually researching and developing across all aspects of the organization. We're continually evolving. We're working towards 100% certification from the Aquaculture Stewardship Council, which is the most robust certi- um, aquaculture certification by a third party in the world. So we're not standing still. We're continuing to evolve. We're continuing to do this important work. And you know, we've been declared an essential service during the pandemic, sure. as other food producers have. Of course. Because we're producing important food, feeding people here in Canada and uh, in other areas. Okay, so how realistic, though, from a, a st- uh, just a moving forward, moving an entire industry forward and making significant changes, <clears throat> how doable is getting every pen out of the ocean yeah. onto some kind of land-based uh, point in within five years? How realistic is that entire plan? Well, I think what you hear from the minister, too, is, is some wisdom around wanting to look at all aspects of that and, and look at that realistically, getting beyond the, the slogans, which are easy. Um, land-based aquaculture hasn't been done successfully any, anywhere in the world on a large-scale commercial basis, raising fish all the way through to harvest. We actually lead the world here in, in land-based aquaculture. All of our ocean-based farmers raise their own fish in land-based hatcheries right on Vancouver Island, up to a certain size before they're then transferred into the ocean. Okay. We have some smaller boutique operations here in BC that successfully raise smaller numbers of fish um, to, to market size in land-based uh, land-based tanks. But once fish get to a certain size, they tend not to do well in large groups in an artificial environment. I mean, land-based tank is not their natural environment. It's it's an artificial environment. They tend not to to do as well. There's also significant environmental considerations to look at. Uh, to transfer, again, we raise 87,000 tons of salmon, 6.5 million meals worth uh, every week. To transfer all of that onto land, you'd have to pave over a lot of land, about 158 uh, square kilometers, I believe. Well, it uh, does sound expensive. There's no question about that part. You're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars, but also the environmental impact. You'd have to fill those tanks with more than 4 billion meals of water just to fill them. Then you're cycling in more water there. And then you also have to replicate ocean currents you have to replicate the 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 ocean um the wave action and whatnot in those tanks because the fish rely on that to stay healthy 
and that takes a lot of electricity. So it's you know significantly increase greenhouse gas emissions. And and right now salmon farming because we're raising cold blooded animals in a natural kind of free range environment in the ocean, they actually have uh, per kilogram produced the lowest greenhouse gas emissions of any animal production sector in, in Canada, mm-hmm. that would significantly increase. So I think you have to look at all of those complexities and, and all of those um, those facts and, and what's going on behind the scenes. It's not a simple matter of just lifting a farm out of... Uh, out of the water and plunking and it digging a big hole nearby and then dropping everything into that hole it's it's it That's isn't right. that it's let's let me mm-hmm. let me rephrase the question then chris so let's sure. suppo- let's suppose it's not uh, a, a request let's suppose it's not a recommendation let's suppose they go and uh, have their little retreat here and they come up with all sorts of exorbitant new policies and this we're going to go big and so we're going to tell mm. we're going to tell the aquaculture industry on the west coast that that 2025 deadline is now firm and they must have all of their pens out of the ocean by 2025. That changes the whole dynamic, and uh, it, it, it then uh, it, it really becomes uh, an imperative. Is that doable? Well, and, and it's speculation as to of whether that might, might happen, but, you know, right now the technology is not there to do that. Okay. And so it, it may, you know, have some significant consequences there. But as I say, the ocean-based aquaculture is, is, is responsible we're, um, we're working to continually evolve, and land-based farming may well play a more significant role in the future as research and development continues right. alongside ocean, ocean-based farming. So, interesting thing, the, um, the United Nations has an organization called the Food and Agriculture Organization, the FAO. They recently came out with a report that found that uh, we've, we've, just in the last couple of years, crossed over that 50% threshold where more than half the fish that we consume as a human race globally is, is now farmed. They farmed, yeah. And, and that, that needs to continue to increase as the human race continues to grow. As, you know, we're going to see it ourselves as we move towards about 10 billion people in 2050 that farming in the ocean, because there's no more land being created for farming, the farming in the ocean is going to become increasingly important. That needs to be done responsibly. It needs to be done with, with care. And, uh, and 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 with the stewardship of, of the ocean and, and the fish that are in there, the wild the wild right. populations in mind, absolutely. Sean, uh, final question to you. We're grateful for your time, mm-hmm. especially taking a little time out of an all important camping trip. But this is this <laughs> is this one's a biggie, and I'm yeah. going back right back to the Rafe Mare days here on CKNW. When it, it in those days, now we're talking 20 years ago, but in those days, the biggest concern about open pen, open ocean salmon farming was the spreading yeah. of disease from animals in pens into the wild population. Has that problem been handled in the ensuing 15, 20 years since we first became aware of it? Well, we've certainly been working in, in those areas. So and we don't put sick fish in the ocean. So our fish are raised uh, for the first part of their lives in land-based hatcheries. Uh, there's vaccination program where the fish are vaccinated against uh, uh, known issues that can cause fish health problems. Mm-hmm. They have to be certified healthy before they go into ocean pens. And then they're continually monitored by fish health veterinarians and technicians to make sure that they stay healthy. And, and if something does happen there, they're, they're treated for it. And so our response to those, those, those issues that are raised, what's unreal, is to continually work to, to manage those issues effectively, to get better and better at that, to continue evolving, to continue innovating, so that we can continue providing this important food um, for British Columbians and Canadians um, every week. And so our approach has really been to, to look at those issues, to manage them effectively, vaccination programs, the same thing for sea lice. Sure. Uh, okay, Sean, uh, final question. I, I'm adding mm-hmm. one more. What, what, what do, <laughs> put a dollar figure on this in terms of the impact of the, the uh, cost or the addition to the B.C. economy on an annual basis. What does aquaculture represent? That's a $1.5 billion uh, industry. Uh, talk about 7000 uh Good family-supporting jobs, most of those in on Vancouver Island, uh, coastal communities out of Port Hardy and Campbell River, surrounding communities like that, as well as, as other areas. And importantly, again, producing millions of meals worth of, of, of food. Sean Hall, thanks for this. We appreciate the update. It's been a while since we broached this topic on the radio, and it's uh, reassuring to know that at least things have moved along and, and efforts are ongoing. bcsalmonfarmers.ca, friends, if you want to learn more. Sean, enjoy the rest of your weekend. We appreciate your time.
Well, thanks for having us on, and I'm, I'm happy to come on and talk about this anytime. Oh, we'll do it again. Count on it. Kyla Lee is a lawyer, a criminal defense lawyer with Vancouver's Acumen Law Corporation, a good friend of this program, who called us up one Saturday morning, not too long ago, to inform us that she had COVID-19. Uh, and she's back with us today to talk about the enforcement laws uh, that were announced yesterday by BC's Public Safety Minister. Kyla, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me back. Well, it's good to have you back. And before we get into the stuff of the day, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I still have flare-ups of symptoms from time to time, but, you know, I'm pushing through. Well, you know, that's that's it's interesting because they say if you got uh, a light case, you had a sort of like a bad cold and it went away for good. But if you got a heavier dose of COVID, it's tough to shake off and the effects linger. And, and not only in your case, this is why I'm bringing it up, is because if you got a, a somewhat heavy case of COVID, it sticks with you for a long time. What's the most annoying and repetitive thing that's still bugging you? Um, It's the shortness of breath. Yeah. I can't walk and talk on the phone or walk more than a couple blocks without running out of breath. Interesting stuff. And do you take meds or is this just a, a kind of your body just eventually gets over it? Hopefully my body just eventually gets over it. I don't have any medicine for wow. it. Wow. Let's talk about the announcement yesterday. Uh, the minister responsible for public safety, Mike Farnworth, talking about very specifically, I'm looking for the quote here, uh, uh, the selfish acts of a small minority of British Columbians who are threatening to erode the progress our province has made in controlling COVID-19. Fair enough. Uh, he also went to some lengths to, at the beginning of his remarks, indicate that he had vetted this stuff extensively through his lawyers and considers it to be challenge proof. What is your take on that? Well, I do think it is vulnerable to constitutional challenges because of the provisions that uh, deal specifically with not promoting activities or not, you know, encouraging others to go to events. Um, that's going to restrict people's rights to freedom of expression. Mm. However, I do agree that it probably will hold up in court um, because in Canadian law, even if something is unconstitutional, that violation of your rights can be saved if there's a pressing public objective sure. to the law and it's proportional. Okay, so it, it's is it likely, because um, you, you kind of live for moments like this, you've had more than a few challenges in your, uh, your career so far, and it's, there's a lot more ahead. Is this the kind of thing that you expect to be challenged fairly promptly? Absolutely. There is a very vocal minority of people who are extremely opposed to any measures to try and control the spread of COVID-19. They think the economy should trump lives. Um, and I expect that those are the type of people who are going to be bringing court challenges very quickly to these types of offenses. As a person who is still recovering from COVID-19, what is your take on the requirement for said uh, measures, enforcement measures, 2000 bucks to organizers and promoters and to $200 to individuals. Appropriate? I think it's appropriate at this point. I think it's disappointing that we had to bring this in. You know, we gave people more than enough opportunity to follow the rules, to do things appropriately, and to respect other people. And people showed that they couldn't do that. So you have to take the next step. Okay, now let's put the shoe on the other foot because you're going to get a phone call. You're in the business. Uh, so it's a, it's a Saturday night in the big city. It's uh, coming up tonight. So somebody's going to have a party somewhere. Uh, somebody's going to call the cops and the cops are going to show up and they're going to be, uh, most likely they will continue to do what they always do, which is, okay, folks, there's too much going on here. It's time to break it up and go home. Now, the advice from the lawyer at this point, Kyla, I'm sure is cooperate, go home. Absolutely. Don't commit an offense. If you show up at a party and there are more than 50 people there, turn around and go home. Don't be there in a circumstance where you expose yourself to a ticket. You can make the right decision at the beginning to protect yourself, to protect others, and to avoid a huge fine. Okay. Well, let's suppose, however, for an alcohol, of course, is frequently a factor. Again, something you know all too well in your line of work. But let's suppose you, for whatever reason, get a $200 ticket. So then what? Well, there'll have to be a dispute mechanism in place, and we haven't heard yet from the government what that's going to look like, but I expect it'll be very similar to other provincial tickets where they're dealt with 
in uh, a, a court similar to traffic court. Um, so the bylaw officer would have to show up, they would have to prove the case, and then a judicial justice of the peace would determine the validity of, of the ticket and whether or not the offense was committed. Does it surprise you that the uh, minister also seconded um, uh, officers from other jurisdictions, including conservation officers and community safety officers, along with bylaw officers, to add to the police presence with respect to enforcing COVID rules? It doesn't. Bylaw officers, especially in cities like Vancouver, are already overworked. They've got a lot to deal with right now. Um, and to add this as their sole responsibility would be too taxing for the enforcement to actually take place. So encouraging officers from other police forces in British Columbia to also investigate and, and prosecute these matters um, will allow for full enforcement so that people who are violating the rules will get caught. How about the host of that uh, party that the cops are going to break up later tonight? And you and I both know it's going to happen. So uh, if the people are chirpy and chippy, they're going to get $200 tickets for not leaving quickly. What about the host of the party? Is that an automatic two grand, Kyla? It's a $2,000 fine for hosting an event that violates the uh, the gathering or the distancing rules. And, you know, that should be a sufficient deterrent to people. Now, parties are expensive to put on anyway, and uh, another $2,000 or risking another $2,000 on top of it is going to make it not worth it for a lot of people. Uh, but then for promoters and people who are putting on private events, uh, the two grand is simply, uh, it's not tax deductible, obviously, but it's simply a cost of doing business. If it's a for-profit event, you just subtract that from the the, the profit line you're attempting to achieve and i think a lot of people you know may run the risk of of working that cost into the cost of the event yeah. raising their ticket prices raising the drink sale prices to try and make that money back yeah uh, to me that's socially irresponsible behavior okay so uh, and now they're also those individuals who promote and host these events there 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 could be uh, liable for greater penalties especially if there is a, re- a repeat behavior right Yes, and I think Minister Farnworth yesterday hinted at possible criminal charges. It's not clear to me what criminal charges could flow from that. Um, I'd be interested to hear his take on that, because the way I read the criminal code, there's really nothing criminal that I can see that would apply in those circumstances, but... I'm sure he's got legal advice on it, and it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, and I guess it's that the criminality would be violation of public health uh, regulations, which aren't in the criminal code. Exactly. And the criminal um, public health regulations that we have in British Columbia are provincial laws. In order for a law to be criminal, it has to be a federal law. So there has to be something federal that allows them to prosecute these people. Well, presumably it's that state of emergency we continue to be in, right? Yes. All right, Kyla, thank you for this. Stay well, huh? We, we're, we're still counting on you to, to make it back to the studio for an in-person appearance. It's been a while. Yes, thank you for having me. Take good care, and thank you for joining us. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.